Hello, and thank you for listening to our debut of Iowa City Matters. This podcast series is aimed at tackling complex topics that impact and showcase our unique community. Each episode, we will address a different topic through in-depth conversations with people who have strong ties to that particular subject matter. I'm Simon Andrew, assistant to the city manager for the city of Iowa City, and I will be your host for episode number one. We will be discussing historic preservation. This is the endeavor that seeks to preserve, conserve, and protect buildings, objects, and landscapes of historic significance. As one of Iowa's oldest communities, we will have a lot to talk about. Let's begin by introducing you to our panel. Jessica Bristow has worked as a historic preservation planner for the city of Iowa City during the past four years. She has a master's degree in architecture and a master's in art and architecture history. Jessica, what's your favorite spot in Iowa City or thing to do? One of my favorite spots in Iowa City is actually outside the old studio art building on the university campus. There's something about the architecture and the metal frame windows that really speak to me, and I love the setting and the surrounding and the old architecture, and I just love to sit there and contemplate it. That's great. Thanks for joining us today. Thomas Egrin is a local artist who serves as the Director of Public Art for the Iowa City Downtown District. He is also a member of the City's Historic Preservation Commission, representing the Northside neighborhood, which he calls home. Thank you for joining us, Thomas. And the same question, what's your favorite place in Iowa City? It's hard to narrow that, right? But um, in our neighborhood is a favorite spot of mine, which is up, um, we often go for walks in the evening or weekend or whatever in our mm-hmm. in the Northside. And, there's a retaining wall along a house at the very top of the hill uh, along Brown Street, and they built a little bench into that retaining wall um, that faces out to the sidewalk, and it's really a lovely spot that was put there for the community, so it's great. Oh, that's fantastic. Connie Champion has served four terms as a member of the City Council here in Iowa City uh, after having served on the Iowa City Community School District School Board. She is also the owner of a downtown business, Catherine's Boutique, which she runs with her daughter. In 2011, Connie received a Historic Preservation Award for a residential paint and exterior finishes on her home on Summit Street in the Summit Street Historic District. Connie, is there a spot in Iowa City that you hold dear? Absolutely. I think my favorite spot in Iowa City is downtown in the library. Sure. I take grandchildren to the library. They think it's my library. They get mad when there's somebody else there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Iowa City's downtown is a very, very special place. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Connie. Josh Moe practices historic architecture at OPN Architects in Iowa City. He is also serving his second term as president of Preservation Iowa, Iowa's statewide advocacy organization working to protect our historic resources and cultural heritage. By now you know the drill. Uh, What's your favorite place in Iowa City, Josh? Well, I have to pick the Englert Theater because OPN Architects is currently working with them (laughs) on their, uh, their, their renovation project that will be starting this year. So Uh, It's also an important uh, centerpiece of of Iowa City culture and art and history, Um, not only the things that they do there, but the space itself is just really great, and it's it's physically and, I think, sort of spiritually the center of Iowa City. Well, thank you all again for joining us. Uh, We'll dive right into the questions. Uh, I'm going to turn to Jessica first. Uh, Why is this topic so important? Why is there a need for historic preservation? Historic preservation is really about preserving a community's cultural heritage. Uh, You can preserve the historic built environment in order to create a sense of place for the community, a, a place that would be unique and different from any other community because each community's history is its own history. Preserving this will help us to teach 
future preservationists allow our community to grow and understand where they came from. We have others on the panel here who either live in historic districts or, or work in the field. Uh, do you have anything to add to that? Why is this important? Why should our community care about historic preservation? Well, historic preservation is uh, a key or central component in sustainability. So while I love old buildings and old spaces and old places um, as a matter of preference, um, from a sustainability perspective, and that's not just ecological sustainability, but social and economic sustainability, preservation is, is, is essential to that effort. Um, buildings that are underutilized aren't good for the city. They're not earning tax base. They're not good for the community. They sort of take away from the pride of the community. And um, I think that, again, thinking about the planet uh, and ecological sustainability, that's the real key driver for saving the planet, is using our old buildings, not throwing them away in the landfill, and uh, not wasting a lot of resources replacing things that are just fine. As one who lives in a historic district, I find it important in our older neighborhoods and preserving those neighborhoods and keeping them from being torn down and turned into apartment buildings, especially ones close to downtown. So I'm very much in favor of historic preservation as neighborhood preservation. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think if I speak from my own personal experience for the house that we live in, in the north side, you know, it had a, it's a historic house from 1914 and uh, its porch had been all closed in, in what I'm sure was an effort to maximize square footage. And, and I'm sure it did maximize square footage, <laughs> but it also um, took away that front porch. And so when the porch was opened back up, you know, we sit on that porch, we have conversations with our neighbors that pass by. And so that isn't to say that a new building couldn't also have a front porch and really speak to the fabric of the neighborhood in that way. But um, those old structures really do that very well. And we notice that change in our neighborhood. When a porch gets opened up, we suddenly know those people that live in that house. Um, and so um, it's, a, it's a real positive change when we put them back the way that they were. Can I just add a little bit to what you just said? Because I think it's important when you look at older neighborhoods, people lived in the front of their houses. Right. And when you look at newer neighborhoods, they live in the back of their houses. So frequently, they don't even know their neighbors. Yeah, it's a good point. Very important to a neighborhood. Well, let's start with some definitions here. Uh, for a, a layperson like me, what makes a building historic? Is it just the age of the building? Is it the architecture? Could you speak to that for us, Jessica? Yes, I think that technically we do have the 50-year mark as something is generally historic if it is at least 50 years old. But tied to that is also the fact that it, it needs to have some relationship to either a person or an event in the community, or it needs to be somehow significant or characterized by its architecture or its materiality or its place. So the age of the property would be tied to something else that also makes it historic. One that was coming to mind was the Tate Arms building, the, the preserving of that, and how the story really is what drove the historic value of the building. Sure. The Tate Arms building, I'm not remembering exactly how old it is right now, but it was built in the early 20th century, and so it certainly has that age going for it. It also was associated with uh, several people uh, related to African-American housing early in the 20th century when uh, there was a little bit of uh, de facto segregation going on in Iowa City, especially related to uh, student housing. And the Tate Arms itself was not specifically for students, but it was related to this kind of civil rights and housing and, 
and African-American history in Iowa City. And so that really makes the Tate Arms rise to the level of actually being eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. Well, that's a good segue to my next question. There is some confusion, I think, of the difference between a local designation and national designation. I know the Tate Arms was designated here locally, but can you speak to the difference of those two a little bit and maybe what that means for the property owner? Sure. The National Register of Historic Places, um, a listing in, in this would basically be an honorarium for the, the property owner. It lets them know that their property is significant. It has history that is at least significant locally. It does provide them the ability to get tax credit funding and, and other state and federal funding. Local historic landmark status is something that is a locally regulated designation, and it does mean that the property owner does need to follow certain guidelines for rehab, remodel, work on the exterior of the property. It also makes them eligible for local uh, funding, such as our Historic Preservation Fund. There's just a difference between the National Register and local because local designation does come with some regulation. National Register listing does not come with that type of regulation. Um, Maybe Josh could chime in on the tax credit piece of that and how the national designation affects that and maybe local projects that have taken advantage of that or maybe opportunities to use that more. Sure. So back one half step about what is historic, determining whether something is is historic or not is sometimes a large group of people with a lot of research and a lot of different specialties having lots of discussion about whether or not something is associated with an event or it's a work of a master or um, some other special consideration for why um, a building might be historic. And so to get that designation as historic, you would go through the process that Jessica outlined uh, to be listed on the National Register. And you can be listed as an individual building or as a neighborhood or they call them districts or multiple property listings. And that's a, a lengthy process, but once you have that determined, you're eligible for these historic tax credits, which allow you to take a building um, if it's for a rehabilitation that may no longer be useful for its original purpose or may be worn out and needs some repair, restoration, rehabilitation. Those are all different things, actually. Then you can do the project on your own, and you can, at the federal level, ask for a tax credit. And at the state level, ask for a tax credit. They're two separate programs. The state program is fully refundable, which means that even if you don't have a tax bill or if you're a not-for-profit who doesn't have a tax bill, you can get 25% of your uh, your, your expenditures that are related to historic preservation back. And that could be a, a, a check you get from the state government. And with the federal government, it's, it's, uh, it's not fully refundable. It's something you get back uh, as, a, as a tax refund. So if you don't have enough tax liability, you can sell those credits to other people. So projects in Iowa City, where that has happened, I guess, would be the Engler years ago did that. And they used a, uh, a mechanism as a not-for-profit to utilize both state and federal historic tax credits. So they created a, a for-profit entity, and they are a not-for-profit entity so that they could utilize both of them. For a lot of historic projects, they need those historic tax credits to make the project move mm-hmm. forward. As far as other for-profit historic tax credit projects, I know Midwest One Bank went through that process. 
Um, unfortunately, uh, here in Iowa City, we don't have uh, a large group of historic tax credit projects. We do preservation, but we're not doing tons and tons of historic tax credit projects, especially not at the federal level, which is disappointing to me, especially if you look at our peers, other cities in the state of Iowa of similar size and even lesser historic building stock. They're doing a lot more and getting a lot more money from the state and federal government for rehabilitation. So love to see more of that happen here in Iowa City. Thank you for that. Sounds like we have uh, some opportunity there as a community. Thomas serves on our Historic Preservation Commission, and Jessica is the staff liaison to that. Uh, could either of you jump in here and explain to us what a historic district is and how many districts does the city of Iowa City have? Iowa City has eight historic districts that are locally designated. A historic district is a neighborhood where we have both contributing and non-contributing buildings within a non-gerrymandered or let's say straightforward boundary that usually provides for both sides of the street and it creates a sense of a neighborhood. The district would have a period of significance and usually that period of significance is the date when the first property was built up to some point around that 50-year period when the district was created that usually is related to the final period when buildings were built. Some of our districts have an infill period around the late 40s or 50s, and some of them do not. But that district was formed to maintain the neighborhood feeling and the, the group of properties as a representative of our history. Connie and Thomas uh, both live in historic districts. Uh, so what kind of impact is there when living in a historic district or home? What do you see as the benefits of living in a historic neighborhood? Um, I think the major benefit is, is because people really do maintain their properties in a historic manner, so to speak. So the neighborhood, for instance, Summer Street, where I live, it's gotten more beautiful over the last 40 years. I don't think it's been designated district that long, but people have really not hesitated to improve their properties knowing that the whole neighborhood's gonna be maintained that way. So I think that's a great benefit of being in historic district. The disadvantages, you have to have everything approved, but I've not found that to be a nuisance and we've done a lot to our house since we bought it. So I just think it's a great advantage to, in preserving your neighborhood and, and keeping your neighborhood intact and making it a neighborhood. Yeah, I live in the north side, and I haven't lived there for 40 years, so I don't know. Of, I can't speak in personally to the change over time, but I can say that I'm sure that what attracted us to that neighborhood is a lot of the results of the preservation of that neighborhood. And and like we've been touching on, that preservation is you know can be architectural and details of the windows and and that, but it might also be you know like I said, like opening up a front porch or really preserving the whole feel of, feel of the entire neighborhood, that there's a garage in the back of the building, not in the front of the building, and, and all of that. So I think we really, if we were to ever move away from this neighborhood, we would really miss the, not just that the houses are beautiful and we enjoy walking around the neighborhood, but the historic platting of the neighborhood, that the yards are really small and people are in their front yards and students play catch in the street, which sometimes is annoying, but also is, <laughs> is quite charming as well. And so there's just a lot of activity in that density and a lot of walkability in that density that is part of that historic character of the neighborhood. And I've also, since being on the commission, really learned a lot about all of those regulations. And I think that there's a lot, you know, 
it's more than just making sure that a window it stays the same or whatever. There's there's a lot of ability for these houses to also evolve. I don't feel like I live in a museum and there are houses that have additions put on or have a new garage built or other dramatic work done on the building. And um, it doesn't uh, stop that work in most cases. It usually only stops it in moments that probably it should. Um, so. Well, I can guarantee you my house is not a museum with 21 grandchildren and eight children. <laughs> <laughs> well, that segues well into the next question. Uh, I think that there are uh, a lot of misconceptions about the responsibilities that go along with uh, living in a historic district. So uh, maybe either uh, the homeowners or uh, Jessica or Josh could jump in on this. Uh, what are some of the responsibilities that come with uh, living in a historic district or home? Well, I think there's a lot of misconception out there. When there was some talk of uh, the downtown being designated historic district, people were saying, well, that means you can't paint the inside, or you can't do this to your building. Well, that's really not true. You can almost do anything you want on the inside of your house, as long as it keeps it standing. Um, <laughs> it's really not that difficult. People think it's much more difficult than it is. But you have to like being a historic district, or it's going to become a pain in the neck for you. But I really love it, so it's not. I haven't found it to be difficult at all. Being in a historic district doesn't mean that you're prevented from doing an addition on your house. That is a fact. But you may be persuaded to not do an addition that doubles the length of your house so that you suddenly block all of the views across the the block that naturally would have happened when the houses were on one side of your property and the garages were on the other side of the property. So some of the work that, that we do at the city with property owners is more about renegotiating exactly what their addition might end up being for their house so that it works better for the house and better for the, the neighborhood. It's not that they couldn't do an addition. It's more that maybe we need to kind of tweak the idea of what that addition will end up being. And I think most, especially having some friends that have gone through that process, I think that those tweaks end up being something that the homeowner also feels good about, where they say, oh, I didn't see it this way, you know, especially if it's setting back that addition so that the, it's not just one sheer wall or, or whatever. But it kind of touches on some like form-based code stuff as well. And, and that's the part actually about preservation that most excites me. I like window trim and whatever, and those are the details that I admire in houses. But that kind of conversation about what does the whole neighborhood feel like and how do these structures contribute or detract from the communal asset, the kind of communal space that we share as a community, as a neighborhood, that's the part that's most, most exciting to me. Well, and our historic districts also include not only the grand houses like on Summit Street or Brown Street, but we also have conservation districts. We have five of them, and Goose Town Horace Mann Conservation District is one of them, and, and that neighborhood is really characterized by more ver vernacular, smaller cottages. So this means that we have homeowners that not only could afford to hire an architect to design their addition. We have some homeowners that could barely afford to do the addition but need to because they need the space. And at the city, we like to try to help those homeowners with some of that design that they need to do that they can't hire someone for. We're not going to do a fancy design for them, but we can do something that works with the house and help them kind of bridge that gap between their needs and what would actually work architecturally. Yeah, and I think that the city staff provides a great resource. And I think, you know, I worked 
helping a carpenter in town work on a lot of historic properties. So I have that sort of knowledge base and working on my house and knowing what I might want to do or not do to it. But um, if that isn't necessarily your hobby or your job experience, there's a lot of resources for the neighborhood to say, hey, this is a project I want to do. And um, the staff of the city can really help guide that and make a make a project a, a great success. One thing about historic districts and about the way that at least the National Park Service uh, views historic preservation is that buildings need to evolve over time and they're expected to evolve over time and they're supposed to develop. And so historic preservation isn't about freezing time. It's about responsible management of development. I frequently hear misconceptions in our commercial property owners that they're worried that a storefront won't be able to change. And Storefronts are things that have changed for most of the buildings in Iowa City maybe a dozen times for some of these older buildings, and that's expected to continue. That's not to say that you can do anything you absolutely want on the exterior, but there's a great amount of latitude to do really wonderful, interesting things in historic structures and not be prevented from catching potential consumers' eye uh, with with your signage and your storefront. Thomas, could you speak to a little bit to the, what the role of the Historic Preservation Commission is? And uh, I'll give a little plug here. We do have two open seats, so maybe you or Jessica can uh, let the public know how they can get involved. Sure. So when a homeowner wants to make a change to their property or repair something on the property or build an addition, those applications, you know, just like you would get a building permit or whatever, this is one of the stages in the process to get the permission to do that project. And the details of it are presented and the commission, you know, um, visits with that and makes a motion on it. For me and being a member of that commission, it's been really informative, both in terms of city process and learning, you know, Robert's rules and all of this stuff um, in terms of city meetings. But it's also, in the context of the Preservation Commission, been a fascinating experience because with every one of these properties comes a history, a, you know, a site inventory sheet or whatever for the property. And so sometimes it's photos of these houses. And I I often learn things about houses in my neighborhood or houses that I know somewhere else in the city that are interesting anecdotes. But also, of course, those anecdotes add up to the intimacy of my relationship with my community. And so uh, it's been a fascinating way to learn more about my own neighborhood and all the historic neighborhoods in Iowa City. And we do have two spots in the commission that are open currently. One is for the Jefferson Street Historic District. It is a district that is along Jefferson Street primarily and an area that has a lot of rental properties and churches. And we need to have a commissioner who is someone who lives in the district. Uh, they don't need to own the property. It could be a tenant of a rental property, uh, but it could not be, say, a pastor of a church. It, they need to live in the property. The other historic district that it has an open seat is the East College Street Historic District. That is bounded by uh, Summit Street and Muscatine. It's very limited, and so that's part of the reason why we've had a difficulty getting a commissioner from that area as well. Okay, thank you for that. So if anybody out there listening lives in either of those areas, uh, Thomas, I think, spoke very well to uh, how good of an opportunity it is to get to know your community and uh, get to know your community's history. 
Does anybody have a place in Iowa City uh, that's historic, maybe has a story that people don't know about, a, a preservation project that our community should be really proud of? Uh, anything that comes to mind, places in town that uh, you'd like to highlight? Well, a building that I really love um, that is right downtown um, is the old Press Citizen building. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that I like that is that we have a lot of you know, turn-of-the-century architecture downtown, um, and I don't know what year that was built. Do you know? It was built in the 1930s. That's what I would guess, yeah. Uh, and it looks it, and it has a wonderful bas-relief frieze uh, over the top that I think speaks to that time. And um, the, the, the mold for that is actually in the Economy Printing Building, where the Press Citizen is now. Oh, is it really? Yeah, you mm. can see the mold for that bas-relief. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. That's okay, yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's, you know, it's a building that is sort of set back from the street. It's on Washington Street and uh, sits higher up, so you sort of don't think about it very much in terms of your, inter you know, in walking down that street. But it's a beautiful, beautiful building that stands out, I think, amongst our existing building stock. Absolutely. And I walk by that one just about every day. And yeah, and it I took think, me a little while to notice it for what you said. It's kind of set back away, but once you do notice it, it's... Yeah, a, and I've never been way. in, but I, I understand that it's pretty responsibly maintained in, inside, and there's been a lot of in, investment from the building owners in, in doing the hard work of keeping that property um, as lovely as it is now. Working with the city as I do, I see a lot of historic buildings. I don't always get to see the interiors because we don't regulate the interiors at all. But every once in a while, I go inside. And one of the properties that really stands out to me is a recent local landmark applicant. It is going through the local landmark process right as we speak and should be designated uh, hopefully sometime in early 2019. And that's the house at 1818 North Dubuque Street. It sits right on the bluff on the southeast corner of Foster and Dubuque Street. And it is an arts and crafts home that is um, clad in uh, split field stone with a glazed terracotta roof. And it is beautiful and going inside I was able to see that it had all of its black walnut original woodwork with original shellac, and it has all of these secret passages and, and spaces in the attic, and, and is really indicative of the arts and crafts style in which it was built, both on the inside and outside, and it's really a special place. It's tucked up in the trees so that when the trees are all leafed out, you can't see it at all. But you can look out over, you know, the, the river valley, and it's just beautiful in that location. And then you can always see its garage, right, especially now. So it's yeah. got this underground, you know, garage that's, I don't even know how many feet lower than the actual house, but probably people driving up Dubuque would be familiar with those two garage doors. So. Well, the one that I can think of that I think everybody knows is the Grant Wood House on Court Street, which is really gorgeous building. It's not totally original. The front porch has been taken off, but Jim Hayes has maintained that house beautifully, and it still has some of the original Grant Wood furniture in it even. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's really just an absolutely gorgeous house. One of my favorite spots in Iowa City that's somewhat hidden is in downtown Iowa City, and it would be the third floor of the Crescent Block, and that's the building uh, 117-121 East College above Revival and the Union Bar and what a lot of people, I think, still think of as the soap opera. The Iowa City Downtown District has a property evaluation program to help owners identify um, potential for their existing property. And so I got to survey that building. 
and I got to survey the third floor of that building, which is this remarkable ballroom space. It's a late mm -hmm. 19th century building with 14-foot ceilings, huge open uh, vaulted space, and not many people have had the opportunity to see it, but it has completely captivated my imagination as this uh, this space that could be absolutely amazing in the future. And I hope sometime in my lifetime that does get uh, reopened to the public and reused because it's a great location and a great space. And it's pretty much untouched other than the graffiti <laughs> um, from its original construction. So a lot of integrity left in that space. It just reminds me, when we re recently remodeled our store for the third time, fourth time, we discovered an old metal paneled wall and it left that exposed and the old original display window, the old original, and we kept those things. So it's really amazing when you start to take things off what you find. Yeah, I found, I was doing work in um, what would have been Byron Burford's house uh, and we were replacing some damaged oak floors and that sort of stuff and we opened up part of a, one of the walls for that project. And I think one of the original owners of that house was a veterinarian or some, probably, you know, probably large animal veterinarian, right? As it was the only kind of veterinarian then, I think. Um, and uh, in the cavity of the wall somehow, there was a sealed newspaper that was a trade periodical, you know, a, a newspaper for vets um, that, you know, that I can't remember now, but the date was like 1902 or something that was just all sealed up in the wall. So it's amazing when you, you hear the story about oh, this is what this once was or who was once here. But when you find that actual evidence uh, of that, it's a pretty special experience. Another plug for a city program here. We do have uh, what we call the Building Change Fund. Josh mentioned uh, unused upstairs space in commercial properties downtown. Uh, we do have a program that provides grants and loans for uh, adaptive reuse of that space or if it needs an elevator or some other accessibility improvements. So uh, any downtown property owners interested in that should reach out to the city. The city recently received an updated historical survey on downtown. This is a big topic as the city considers applying to the National Register of Historic Places. Let's start by defining the purpose of the survey and potential next steps of that process. Uh, Jessica, could you lead us off there? Sure. Uh, we originally had a survey of our downtown properties that was completed in 2001 by historian Marla Svenston. And since then, uh, many properties had changed or been removed or built, and the area had just changed its character quite a bit. We had a few property owners and other local people who were interested in redoing the survey, and so City Council directed us to go ahead and hire a consultant who reviewed Marlis's 2001 survey and the site inventory forms and determined whether or not we had uh, contributing properties to a historic district. The consultant, Alexa McDowell from AK Consulting in Minneapolis, did determine that we have a potential historic district. And she outlined the, the idea of including an area of urban renewal. It's a little bit controversial because urban renewal was controversial across the United States as well as in Iowa City, but it really is a part of our downtown history. Including the urban renewal area also allows us to include areas of the pedestrian mall in the historic district, which would not be able to be included without that story of urban renewal. Currently, we have the, the final report and the consultant's recommendations, and our Historic Preservation Commission has recently discussed the recommendations and uh, will 
look to city council to direct staff to uh, proceed with a National Register Historic District. We have already reached out to the state to make sure that they can provide a formal opinion to the city about the viability of the urban renewal part of the story for the historic district. We want to make sure that that's something that we can actually get approved through the state and the National Park Service. This would lead to a National Register historic district where these property owners in contributing properties would be eligible for state and federal tax credits and property tax exemptions based on rehab work that they do and the increased value of the property after that rehab. We also have some local things that they could potentially be eligible for. Yeah, one property that I discussed earlier was the Angler, and they were able to use historic tax credits in the past and may be able to use them again in the future. Um, And that's because they went through the costly process of getting themselves listed and doing their own National Register nomination. And um, you you don't get to eliminate that step, but there's a huge shortcut now for everyone else. If we get a National Register historic district, not only will those key contributing buildings like the Angler sort of be a couple of steps ahead in the process, um, but other buildings that may not have been eligible for historic tax credits as contributing buildings in that district will now be eligible. And so I, I see it as a huge opportunity for property owners to uh, who, who may have not had the money or resources to rehabilitate their building to now have access to a substantial pool of capital through both federal and state tax credits to get those projects done and to reopen underutilized spaces on second and third stories. Our process will proceed with hiring a consultant again to write the nomination, and that consultant will then proceed by ushering the nomination through the state review process, and then uh, that nomination will go on to the National Park Service. We estimate that it'll take at least a year for this to be complete. Okay, thank you. And, uh, you know, Connie mentioned that not everybody necessarily sees eye to eye on the the value of that designation. Um, do you know when it's expected to go to, to council and do we anticipate some controversy with it at that point? I don't believe so. I think that the process right now is actually to create more of an information packet memo to council. The cost for hiring the consultant is not so great that we need to go through necessarily a formal budgetary process in order to do that. Um, As I said, we've already asked for the formal opinion from the state. So uh, once we get the go-ahead from either the city manager or city council, then we can proceed with hiring a consultant. We will likely hire the same consultant who did the, the site inventory form in the survey recently because of the fact that she did come up with the story of urban renewal and has already done a lot of that research. So her, her job will be making sure that the boundary is, is really the best boundary. Uh, we had a public meeting in October to present the information and And it had been voiced by a few people that the boundary didn't include properties such as the old Carnegie Library. And by maybe extending the boundary to include that, it makes that property eligible for tax credits as well instead of of going for just an individual national register listing. It, It would not be awkward or gerrymandering to reach out and and include that property. So there is a little bit of of, um, evaluation that needs to happen 
as the nomination form is uh, processed just to make sure that the boundary is, is really exactly what we want to do. We'll also have quite a bit of public outreach. We want to make sure that the property owners understand that doing this National Register Historic District is not going to impact them as far as any regulations from the city. They are not going to be required to do anything different from their property than they might do right now. It's just going to provide a benefit to them. They can use the fact that they're part of a historic district for advertising and bringing people in, but they can also get these tax credits and other other funding as well. So we will reach out to the property owners and the public. We want to make sure everybody understands what's going on with the process. It's very different from a local historic district. I think there's tremendous amount of misconception about that downtown. So I think it's the most important thing you can do is educate people on what this means because they're all scared to death of it. The Iowa City downtown district was at uh, our Historic Preservation Commission meeting as well. And it, it was obvious that we will be working together in order to communicate to the property owners and, and just make sure that they, they know what what it means to be a part of this historic district. Well, a lot of the downtown property owners also, I think that they can be mischaracterized a little bit too. They care about their buildings and, you know, I'm not, not every single one maybe, you know, but uh, many of them do and they are interested in, in learning more about this. And so I, I think that it's, um, you know, it's nuanced and, but I think there's a lot of support as well from property owners who do understand the benefit that will come from it. I had an opportunity to speak with uh, a previous president of the Downtown Association, the sort of predecessor to I- ICTD, and uh, he was asking me questions about his, his storefront, that um, he was under the impression that because he was a National Register building, um, that he couldn't make any changes to it. And as it turns out, it was the fact that they had done an historic preservation tax credit project and received a whole bunch of money from the federal and state government once you do that, there is a period of time that you can't then undo that work. You're taking public money, so they're saying for a period of time you can't do that. But he had existed with that presumption that National Register districts meant you couldn't do work for the last 20 years. And um, it's just a, a simple misconception, but um, you know, having that little bit of information like, oh, the, the mechanism here was the fact that they took a bunch of money and, and, and got to do this really great project changed his perspective completely on, on what that means. So I think that just getting those stories out and sort of undoing the sort of little bits of misconception about this very complicated thing, because it's, I think we'd be doing a disservice to everybody to com- explain it as simple, you know, it's, it's complicated, but it's totally worthwhile. Another question here, uh, can I have each of you talk briefly about a proud moment that you have experienced in relation to historic preservation, uh, perhaps a, a building that was designated or um, the report issued or a project, Josh, that you worked on? Yeah, I had the uh, privilege to work on the uh, what was once known the Knutson Building. It's also the Cedar Rapids Condensed Milk Factory, and now it's the Chelsea Apartments, uh, but it's a, a 19th century factory. Uh, It was designed to can and make condensed milk, but never successfully made a can of condensed milk. (laughs) It went on to uh, make caskets and gun barrels, and then it was briefly a gay bar, and then it was a haunted house, and then the roof collapsed, and it was a junkyard, and it was a disaster, and uh, a portion of the back of the building fell down, and it was going to be demolished. Um, But the citizens of Cedar Rapids and their uh, not-for-profit organizations rallied around the building. They got it listed on Preservation Iowa's Most Endangered list. 
They went to many city council meetings demanding that the city figure out a way to save this building. And they did. Uh, they came up with multiple developers, came up with proposals. Of course, the city had to put money into it, of course. And uh, I got to work with one of the developers who, who, who won that selection to convert that building into uh, apartments. And it's a lovely space, um, but it was an example of something that a lot of people said was too far gone. It couldn't be saved. And they were wrong. If you have a will, you can rehabilitate just about anything. Um, and that building had a lot of challenges, so that was really rewarding when we brought it back to life. And also, um, because of the size of the building, it had a lot of flexibility, and there's tons of apartments in this space that are both very expensive, nice apartments, but also uh, more reasonable, small-scaled, affordable apartments, which is another reason why I like historic preservation is because it lends itself well to sort of multiple sizes of housing opportunities, which means multiple cost points, which means uh, economically integrated kinds of neighborhoods, communities, and apartment buildings. But yeah, I'm proud of that one. Absolutely. That is a fantastic project. I grew up in Cedar Rapids, and yeah, difference is night and day. I think the project I'm probably most proud of is the project where um, the city and Friends of Historic Preservation uh, moved the Hauser Metzger house to save it from demolition. When I first started at the city, I knew that that house was slated for demolition along with its neighbors, and it was just a fact. Soon after that, we had um, a storm, and the house at 623 College was struck by lightning and caught fire. And uh, we knew that that house would probably have to come down and it would leave a big hole in the middle of a very intact historic district. And it was potentially problematic because no one really wanted to see new construction there. And at one point, we just saw the fact that we had a historic house that would need to come down and we had a place to put it. And we worked through all of the hoops and craziness that it took to get that moved. And while it's still under rehabilitation, it will eventually be sold as a single-family home uh, probably sometime this year. The work that it took to coordinate with everyone to get that property moved was astronomical, really. It, it, it took a lot of, of meetings and coordination and communication and uh, begging and pleading, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the house got moved, and the public came out and watched it move, and there was something about all of the people watching that really led to a strong sense of community and it was kind of like a little party happening that day and and while we had to take a break and just stop working on it after it moved because it took so much energy to get it moved that it was it was just a really huge sense of relief and sense of accomplishment to to fill that spot in that historic district and save a house that really was very intact with all of its exterior and interior details. That was a fascinating process. I was one of the folks out there watching it move. I know. <laughs> it looks uh, great, too. Yeah. Yep, it looks fantastic in its new location. And you're right, it really did feel like a community event mm -hmm. that people were coming out and, and celebrating. It was a, a great, 
great project. And with that one, not only did we really have to work with the community and city staff and other departments, but we also had to reach out to the State Historic Preservation Office because we wanted to make sure that the house, once it was in the district, would be able to be considered contributing to that historic district so it could be eligible for future tax credits or other things that it could be eligible for as a member of that historic district. And so we did acquire that opinion from the state that it would still be contributing to the district as well. And that it wouldn't detract from the district, which is, you know, sometimes the possibility is people want to move things around and frequently it's inappropriate and damaging to do that. You can not only damage the thing you're moving, but damage the thing you're moving it to. I have a little feather in my cap. Let's hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when the when the England was looking for state financing, the city had to donate seventy thousand. The county had I can't remember the amount of money, but there were not four votes on the council to do that. And I begged, borrowed, pled, and offered to filibuster all night long until we had four (laughs) votes. (laughs) Thank you very much. We thank you for that. that. Well, thank you all. That was a remarkable discussion. We appreciate you being a part of the conversation and all that you do to make our community a great place to live and work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope all of you have enjoyed listening to our first episode of Iowa City Matters. We look forward to bringing you more conversations on a variety of different topics. If you want to follow along, please subscribe to our podcast, Iowa City Matters. You can find each episode on the city's website, icgov.org backslash Iowa City Matters. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks again for joining us.